Welcome to To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation so we can grow in our relationship with God. This morning we're going to be in Isaiah 5, and the last time the message was called The Breakdown of Society, and you could see a lot of just rough things happening, really in Judah, although Isaiah the prophet ministered to the Judahites in the northern kingdom of Israel. And today, the message is titled The Parable of the Vineyard. You might say, gee, I've heard that before. I'm going to get to that because Jesus picks this up in the New Testament. So the parable of the vineyard, and you know, contextually, I think sometimes we make a mistake in the church when we look at some of the things that are going on in society, and we read the Bible, and we say, them, they, you know, those unsaved people. Contextually, God was chastising his people, the believers. You know, they were supposed to do a better job. They were supposed to be a purifying agent in society. So although I'm going to make some parallels, 2,700 years ago versus today, amazing parallels to what's going on in our society, we have to be careful of not pointing the fingers and not looking in the mirror. Because he was speaking about believers, you know? And there's some very famous uh, quotes in here, when good would be called evil and evil would be called good. You can look at any decadent society. You could look at Greek society. You could look at Roman society. You could look at American culture and see that very easily. But the problem is when it happens among God's believers. Now, I don't normally do this, but I would hope to see all of you, if you, if you can make it next Sunday, because Isaiah 6, <laughs> you know, especially if you're, you're new to the Old Testament, if you've never read Isaiah 6 and heard it taught, I don't think anybody can botch that teaching. I mean, that's just a softball. You know, that's just a lob to hit it out of the park because you get to see the glory of God and it's just such a powerful image of what Isaiah saw and how he responded to see in the glory of God. So I hope to see you all next Sunday as well. So we're going to jump in. We're going to look at this in four parts, starting with verse 1. Isaiah is saying, Now let me sing to my well-beloved a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up and cleared out its stones and planted it with the choicest vine. He built a tower in its midst and also made a wine press in it. So he expected it to bring forth good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. So one out of four is the parable of the vineyard, something very unusual, You know, Isaiah was going out there, he was preaching, he was, you know, the word of God, he was saying a bunch of things that God told him to say, and all of a sudden he switches gears. So I I would imagine it would be interesting back then to say, oh look, Isaiah the prophet singing a song, you know, and he sings this song of a parable uh, about God and to God. And you might ask, of course, it was symbolic, the vineyard was symbolic of the children of Israel. You might ask, well, why did he do this? Sadly, because many tuned his preaching out, so he tried another method. Jesus did the same thing. He went through this period of just speaking in parables. And the people were like mildly curious, piqued their curiosity. The disciples wanted to know more. 
And I, I look at that today as well. God will do everything He can to try to reach us. And that's the beautiful thing about our God. He doesn't want anyone to perish. He wants us all to come to Him through Jesus Christ. So you see these different methods, and again, he's used different methods on me when I was an unbeliever, and here I am. But he's speaking metaphorically about this nation of Israel that he plants in this particular land, beautiful land by the Mediterranean Sea, perfect ground, perfect climate, had homes in it already. And, and he speaks about the tower, meaning protection, that's key. We'll get back to that. And then he says, well, there's a wine press in the vineyard as well. What does that mean? He had an expectation of the believers to bear spiritual fruit. See, God gives us all the accoutrements to be successful spiritually. And there's an expectation. And that's the funny thing because today, when you hear certain preaching, you almost think it's a one-way relationship where God is a celestial Santa Claus and every time we come to him, we're asking for something. You know, God, I need this, I need that, I need this. All right, I'll talk to you next time. Next time it's, God, I need that, I need this, you know. And that's really not a relationship. So the Bible gives us the truth. It shows us that he has expectations on us as well. So the Israelites, instead of bearing good grapes, they bore wild grapes or bad spiritual fruit. Again, what, what is, you know, in our lives, what would somebody say about us? What would be our epitaph? For me, it would, I would hope it would be that he loved the Lord and he served him. You can keep the smartest person in the world. You could keep the richest person. I don't need any of that. I just want people to know me as somebody who loved the Lord and desired to serve him. Unfortunately, his own people back then were not doing that. And their behavior and their attitudes were worse than the pagans that lived next door to them. Now, centuries later, Jesus picks this up in the parable of the vineyard in Matthew 21. Centuries later, he's telling the religious system, He's telling the people, hey, <laughs> centuries have gone by and you're still not doing the right thing and God is not going to let this go on forever. Moving on, verse 3, it says, And now, inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done in it? Why then, when I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, its protection, and it shall be burned, and break down its wall, and it shall be trampled down. I will lay it waste. I shall not be pruned, or it shall not be pruned or dug, but there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah, and are his pleasant plan. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression, for righteousness, but behold, weeping. So two out of four is judgment. And God starts out by saying, what more could I have done? You know, it's amazing. It's like a courtroom setting. Judge between me and my vineyard. You know, I'm the caretaker. I'm the creator. What more could I have done for these people that they treated me like this and walked away? And they did, listen, we're going to read about judgment, and it's not a pretty picture. But remember, there were some horrible practices going on among God's people. And they were, some of them were worshiping, they had idols, like little demons, and they, they had these little temp, temples that they would, it was really weird. It was, I think it's Ezekiel, a few of the prophets bring this up, that even some of the little closets areas in the temple, that they were like perverted items, and 
even the, the religious echelon where they were secretly doing really awful things. So God's like, I can't, I can't do this anymore. I mean, this has to stop. And you know, sometimes we see that with people, no matter how much you bless them, no matter how much you give them, no matter how much you love them, they don't bear any fruit. And then sometimes the only answer is tough love. You know? Um, some people are takers. They're just there to take, to take, to take. And if you ever dealt with somebody like that, it's exhausting because there's, there's no give back. There's not even any appreciation. So God removes the hedges and the protection, and then what happens? We can flip back from the imagery to actually what happened with these border skirmishes, these border wars, and the Syrians invading the land, and then years later, the Babylonians invading. And it wasn't pretty, and a lot of times they would burn villages. It was terrible. They would burn fields, crops, um, scorched earth kind of policy. But, you know, this couldn't continue. I, I think of the briars and the thorns. When I read about that, I thought of Adam and Eve. You know, just like Israel was given a perfect scenario, so was Adam and Eve. They were given everything that was beautiful. I mean, just everything that was planted in the ground bore beautiful fruit and crops. You didn't have to work for it. But because of sin, through them, uh, it was a cursed creation. And briars and thorns came up, and men had to work by the sweat of their brow to make anything good and grow. And verse 7, he speaks about he looked for justice. He looked for righteousness, but he found oppression. And it was very sad. You know, even those that aren't saved have a strong sense of justice. You know, what's right, what's wrong. But we have to be careful sometimes. And, and we see there's a national discussion about righteousness and justice and oppression. We have to be careful to make sure that the way we look at everything is reflective. I want love, I want forgiveness, I want compassion, I want grace. But do I show that? Right? These are reflective principles. Uh, people want justice when they're wronged, but what about when we're the ones doing the wronging? Are we willing to repent, to apologize, to ask for forgiveness? So a lot of these, these concepts go in two different directions. Righteousness. Sometimes we can look at ourselves as righteous, but then look at others with a, with disdainfully or look down on them. You know, very interesting principles that we see here. But the people weren't practicing it. And I can tell you something, we have a very selfish society. You know, you look at these national discussions. Everybody wants what they want, and they're not willing to give a little to somebody else to make the dialogue happen. Selfishness in the land. And we're there. Verse 8, we continue. Woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field, till there is no place where, there may, where they may dwell alone in the midst of the land. In my hearing, the Lord of hosts said, Truly, many houses shall be desolate, great and beautiful ones without inhabitant. For ten acres of vineyard shall yield one bath. Ten acres is a lot. One bath is about six gallons. Now we're talking about crop production. And a homer of seed shall yield one ephah. So we're talking about six bushels of seed, and one seed can yield an amaz amazing amount of plants. But it only yields one ephah, or a little bit more than half a bushel. So he says that, and this is the three out of the four, and it's the woes of Isaiah. The woes, if you're familiar with the book, you understand this six woes, seven woes, depending on 
two of the woes if you count them as one woe or two separate woes. So let's just call them the woes of Israel. <laughs> People get hung up on stuff and it's like, all right, let's just get the point and start a splitting hairs of which woe goes to which woe. You know what I'm saying? But woe, see, you're never going to forget that now. <laughs> oh, I remember that. Yeah, what are you talking about? Woes. <laughs> but woes were, it was really grief on both sides. The people were grieved because God had to deal with them. He had to punish them. But God was grieved because God, he wants to bless. You know, he wants to forgive. He wants to do a lot of things. And sometimes he's put in a position where he just has to, he has to discipline. He has to bring judgment. So it was woeful to God, but it was very woeful to the people because they actually were the recipients of that discipline. So the woe of covetousness. What, it, what is he talking about? House to house, field to field. Well, in New Jersey, you would just think of overdeveloping. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> They're putting up developments everywhere. But in this particular uh, application, it was mass accumulation of real estate and wealth, and often through unscrupulous means. God's response was, well, with these coming battles and wars, don't... <laughs> Boy, some applications today, even among his people today, don't rely on your real estate, on your investments. Rely on God. Because he can take those away, or the world can take those away. It's not much. And he was basically saying that even those of you that weren't driven from your homes, your crop production is going to be very low. If I shut the spigot off on the clouds, and, you know, don't rely on your fields and your crops and your real estate and your investments. Even today, many believe power and wealth will insulate them from tragedy. But that's, you know... I worked at an insurance company, <laughs> just remember this, this was well over 25 years ago, and uh, I worked with a guy who worked at the insurance company with me, I'm like, he always came in in a suit, and he said he worked on Wall Street, I'm like, what are you doing here with us, you know what I'm saying, we weren't making much money, he goes, I couldn't take Wall Street anymore, but this was during a very fluctuating time, and he said my first day that I went to one of the buildings, I don't know anything about Manhattan, but he said the first day I, I went there, uh, my mentor pushed me back. A guy jumped out of the window. He lost, he lost, and that's his whole life. It's very sad. His whole life was about his investments, and when the market took a, took a tank, he felt he had nothing left for, to live for, and he jumped out the window. It's very sad. How we, do we value ourselves that little that we think that I'm tied to a dollar figure? But these people that he's speaking about were greedy, they were covetous, they had an insatiable desire for things. And Christians can also be so focused on accumulation that they forget. They don't focus on the Lord. And in verse, when we continue later, we see that they don't even serve the Lord. You know, wealth and possessions could become a God. How much is enough? You know, how much do we actually need? How much accumulation? You know, some look at the deal above, the deal is to be worshipped, the deal, and by any means necessary, I have to get this deal. So there's, there's so many things to look at here. These woes are very impressive. Verse 11, woe to those who rise early in the morning that they may follow intoxicating drink, who continue until night, till wine inflames them. The harp and the strings, the tambourine and the flute, the wine are in their feasts but they do not regard the work of the Lord, nor consider the operation of his hands. This is the woe of drunkenness and partying. 
This person rises early in the morning and drinks alcohol all the way until the evening. Now, the Bible doesn't say, and people ask me this all the time, Calvary Chapel kind of has a position on alcohol, but I'm going to tell you that the Bible says it's not a sin. People say, can I have a glass of beer or a bottle of beer watching the game? Am I in your living room? You know what I'm saying? <laughs> I mean, if, as long as you know the difference between one bottle and 12 bottles, sure, because, the, because drunkenness and, and substance abuse is sinful. It's sinful behavior in the Scripture. Uh, but, you know, to have a glass of wine or a glass of beer, if you can control it, and it, it doesn't control you, and it doesn't take you over, then there's no sin in that. But verse 12, th- these folks are party animals. They don't, they don't regard the Lord. Um, alcohol, drugs, pleasure is their God. You know? Now, the encouraging part for me is, I'll just speak for myself, this was me. I mean, I don't think I drank all day, but started on the weekends and then it moved to the week and it just started encroaching on my life to where it just and I never stopped at one but I I'm saying this to give you encouragement if you're struggling with that God completely delivered me from it I literally could go to a bar after I leave here and hand out Bibles and spread the gospel and see all the booze going back and forth and smell it it just has no power over me anymore I'm a new creation in Christ I have victory over it um, if you want to know about that, please talk to me because he can do, I'm not special, he'll do the same thing for you that he did for me. That's why I'm telling you that, you know what I'm saying? So uh, you just have to want it. Some people get so used to their dysfunction that they, it, there's almost a fear of moving away from that dysfunction. It's almost like a companion that they've had for so long. And it's sad. Again, I was there. And back then, I didn't think I had a problem. <laughs> now I look back and go, man, I was nuts. <laughs> I was out of my mind. So, um, again, even in general, entertainment, pleasure, these things can be a God. They can distract us from God. And we have to be careful not to look at the extremes in the Scripture and go, oh, that's not me, I'm fine. But is there any part of it that is creeping into our lives and our walk with the Lord? That's the question. It gets more challenging when you ask that. Verse 13, he continues, Therefore my people have gone into captivity because they have no knowledge. Their honorable men are famished and their multitude dried up with thirst. Therefore Sheol, or the realm of the dead, has enlarged itself and opened its mouth beyond measure. Scary. Their glory and their multitude and their pomp. And he who is jubilant shall descend into it. People shall be brought down. Each man shall be humbled and the eyes of the lofty shall be humbled, but the Lord of hosts shall be exalted in judgment. And God who is holy shall be hallowed in righteousness. Then the lambs shall feed in their pasture, and in the waste places of the fat ones, or the fatlings, strangers shall eat. And here are the consequences of those sinful actions. You know, and Jesus even spoke about when he returns. People will be marrying, they'll be given in marriage, they'll be you know, partying, they'll be doing social things. And then the Lord comes in a twinkling of an eye, like a thief in the night, and He comes, and He comes again, and some won't be prepared. But a few things we see, again, the, the captivity from the invading nations, and those that didn't survive that would have died, death. Again, Sheol is the realm of the dead. 
Now, this is interesting. Sheol, which is an inanimate object, inanimate, has opened its mouth, its enlarged its border, border to receive all the dead coming into it. A frightful sight. It's called the anthropomorphism. <laughs> it's five syllables, big word. But it basically means to give human characteristics to something that's inanimate to explain it better. So Sheol opens its mouth and receives the dead that are coming into it. Sounds like something out of a horror movie. Um, those that died uh, not as in rebellion, then judgment would follow that as well. It's not a pretty picture, but none of this had to happen. And that's why you need preachers, because today people still die, right? Every second, Pastor Vinny has talked about how many people go into eternity every second. And we need to spread the good news, the good news of salvation to save them from that. And that's through Jesus Christ who died for our sins. Right? According to Leviticus 17 in the Old Testament, that there had to be a blood sacrifice for sin, and Jesus provided that. So that's the good news, that none of this needs to happen. And that's all throughout the Scripture. God's not mean. He's not cruel. He's like, listen, there's consequences for everything, including sin. But none of this needs to happen. And this morning, it doesn't need to happen either. If you don't know the Lord, well, take that step of faith. Verse 17 not only the houses would be left and the, and the vineyards would be left, but the, the lambs would just openly graze. You know, the animals would be wandering around just taking care of themselves because their owners were gone or strangers would come in and take that land. But the Lord's name would be hallowed. You know, God will not be mocked. Um, today, many laugh at this kind of stuff. You know, oh, that, oh, you're one of those fire and brimstone teachers. No, I actually teach everything, the good, the bad, you know, the happy, the sad, it's all in the scripture because it's a reflection of life, isn't it? You can't just tell a one-sided story about positive things. That's actually not accurate. That's fantasy land. But how many have laughed at these things? How many have laughed at God? Nietzsche, who many still follow, Friedrich Nietzsche, God is dead. At the end of his life, he went insane. And I believe that he, because he kept thumbing his nose at God and he led a lot of people astray. If you read secular sources, not Christian sources, he sent letters to fa family and friends and there were ramblings of a madman. He was out of his mind. Uh, he might have been demon possession. So Nietzsche, God is dead. No, Nietzsche's dead, but God is still alive. <laughs> Voltaire, I looked at some of these guys, so arrogant. They're so arrogant in their intellectualism and post-Christianity. And only foolish people and barbaric, archaic people follow the things of God. You hear that today. <laughs> There's um, a town near us that they talk like that. <laughs> um, anyway, we'll move on. Verse 18. Couldn't help myself. <laughs> Woe to those who draw iniquity or sin with cords of vanity and sin as if with a cart rope that say, let him make speed and hasten his work that we may see it. And let the counsel of the Holy One of Israel draw near and come that we may know it. This is sarcasm. This is a challenging. This isn't genuineness. But this is a woe of blatant sin. Challenging God to do something about their sinful lifestyles. Back in the day, if you had a cart, it wasn't like today. We hoard. I mean, we, we, in this country, we have so much. In, in most other countries, they don't. And even still in other countries, they have carts that they're valuable. So when they move from place to place, they would take their carts with them and, and carried mostly food and things that they could use to survive. So, and the carts weren't very big. 
And again, much of the world lives like that. So an American idea, we have to put ourselves to help us to understand that. Now, your carts contain your valuables and your necessities. So this imagery of, is of those, his believers, his people, pulling carts of sin. Sin is their God. And, and the rope is a cord of vanity, of foolishness, of futility. Right? Verse 19, basically, if I could paraphrase it, they're saying to God, I dare you. I defy your word. I defy Isaiah, your prophet. Do something about it. Or prove yourself. Show yourself. Right? We see sometimes late night uh, comedians lambast, make fun of Christians, you know, call out God, strike me down. And I usually say the fact that you're, you haven't been struck down, the fact that you're not about 4,000 degrees in a pile of ash right now is the fact that God is merciful and he'll take the abuse, but he's only going to take it for so long. The age of grace eventually is going to run out. I don't get mad at people like that. I pity them. Because if they don't change, one day they will be struck down. Verse 20, he says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. This is opposite world. This is the world we live in today. Right? We, we watch the news, we read things, we don't know what to believe. We don't know if it's satire. We don't know if it's false reporting. I mean, the media engages in snippets and sound bites and clipped videos, and, and you just wonder what is real and what's false. It's the age of deception. And Christians, we quote this a lot. Oh, we live in the age, and Christians have been quoting this since the Bible was written. They call evil for good and good for evil. It's a common thing that we quote. But sin, apparently... You know, you watch these shows, I Got a Makeover. You know, you go and they do your hair and they give you new clothes and they, they shave your beard and you, they do a whole makeover. Well, sin gets a makeover here because sin is ugly, the, the pride and hatred and all those kind of things. But in this sense, everybody massages their chiropractics. You know, they do adjustments and sin now looks different. It gets a makeover. It's more palatable. It's pretty. We rejoice in sin in American culture, don't we? We don't we? You know, I, I wonder when the last time was that when you look at some of these, e even some of the cultural discussions and sports figures taking a knee and stuff, I just was wondering when all the times Tim Tebow took a knee in prayer, they just literally, you could hear them laughing at him. I want to I remain a virgin until marriage. Laugh, hysterical. You know, just the things that they said about him. When was the last time anybody in any the academia or the media or um, even entrenched politicians, right, the, that ever said anything good about somebody coming out as a born-again Christian? What about in Hollywood? They have these quiet, secret Bible studies with some of the Hollywood people who are born-again Christians because they know it can mean their job if it's found out. It's sad. They're hiding underground. So I'm not painting with a broad brush. There are Christians in Hollywood, not a whole lot. There are some in academia, not a whole lot. The media, not a whole lot. When you look at all these groups together, they're secular humanists. They have to push against Christianity. You know, see some of these demonstrations in college. If you go and you want to be a part of it and you're a born-again Christian, they find out they don't want you. You don't fit their demographic. And I think what's really sad is that Christians 
on social media and such, they parrot everything they hear on, on TV. I don't care if it's Fox or CNN or MSNBC. And I, I just say to myself, man, we need to be more in our Bibles than being brainwashed by the television. You know? Because they're not our friends. In 1 John 2.15, it says, Do not love this world. Now that word doesn't mean not to love unbelievers. We're to love unbelievers. But do not love the world system because it's poised against God. Right? Psalm 2, the kings of the earth, they take counsel against him. They deride him. They mock at him. Um, it says, Do not love the world or the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. You can't follow, you can't be a Christian and follow this secular humanist thought, this globalist agenda, and then say, oh, everything's great with me and God. It, it doesn't work. You know, in the Roman Empire, there was also orgies and, and emperor worship and all kinds of bad things, and the Christians, they went against the current. They didn't go with it. You know, we're not to go along to get along. You see what I'm saying? Um, and they were slaughtered for it. Does the Bible set our agenda or does the television? Because it can't be both. It can't be both. So I've been a little slow to jump on some current events and I've been chastised for it. But there are some things that I've seen that I said, you know what, I have some discernment on this. Just because the media sets an agenda for who should hate who and who should be mad at who, I'm not going to jump into that fray. Because they don't set my agenda. They don't wag me. I follow the lead from my Lord. It's the worst thing is when you have ministers who jump on the bandwagon and these things are, are wrong in God's eyes. They're false teachers. They're wolves in sheep's clothing. You know, as I was studying this, I thought of, of one issue that we could possibly agree upon. One issue. And I'm just thinking about it and I'm just looking and I'm just checking out what's going on in, in our culture today. And I thought I found it. And I thought this was something that Christians and worldly people could agree upon. And I also found out that I was wrong. Hugh Hefner died between Sunday and Sunday, the founder of Playboy, the father of modern-day pornography. And I'm thinking, surely we can all agree on this. Boy, was I wrong. I can't believe the feminists that were sticking up for Hugh Hefner. This guy has objectified women he opened the door for even more vile forms of pornography. Listen, I've sat with families and I've sat with, with men, fathers, husbands who've been, who have been, um, they're addicted to it. Well, what do you think that does to the wife in that relationship? What do you think that does to the family over time? It destroys it. It is some scary stuff. It's designed, there's also the ways that they Photoshop and it's amazing what they can do with imagery today. Um, the, the guy who's mesmerized by that particular female in, in that magazine, if he saw her on the street, he would never recognize her. It's, it's satanic. It's demonic is what it is. It's destructive. So I, I feel very seriously about this. Um, being a police officer for 25 years, I can tell you with sex crimes, pornography is always a part of it. It rewires a man's brain to make him a base beast where he can't see a woman for anything else but sexual gratification. Me, I think Hefner was an old pervert. That's just me, okay? That's just me speaking as Joe DiProsimo. But I cannot believe what I'm seeing in our culture. And it, it bothers me because I've seen the effects of it, okay? But 
Got, you got ministers saying what a great man he was. He bragged about sleeping with thousands of women, some men. He had three sham marriages while he was messing around with other women. You know, I hope it was all worth it because he's not going to be happy for the rest of eternity unless he repented. So that's where I'm at with that. <laughs> Verse 21, we continue. Is Joe unplugged this morning? So, <laughs> you know... You know, we're not politically correct, but we're definitely biblically correct here. I have to make sure that my personal feelings don't overstep the Holy Spirit. So keep me in prayer, work with me here. But verse 21, Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and prudent in their own sight. This is the woe of pride. The woe of pride, which can also be tied to the woe of deception. This is the argument. Is this part of the former woe or is it a woe unto itself it doesn't matter um, people are prideful you also see pride in our culture uh, and the proud the the overeducated are the ones and, and there's plenty of overeducated christians who who do great work in apologetics but academia in general they're so smart they have so many degrees that they explain away god you know uh, i did some research again I didn't go for softballs. I didn't go to Christian sources. Completely secular. I looked at Darwin. What type of life did Darwin have? He had an extremely troubled life. He quit medical school. His father kept trying to get him to go back to school. Forced him, I think at the Cambridge. He eventually got a degree, and he was a freelance uh, scientist. And he even at the end questioned a lot of his theories because he didn't see them pan out to become facts. But the world follows him. Why? Because he's poised against God. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? You, they, they'll, they'll grab at straws. They'll take any failed uh, pseudoscientist and try to take that data and use that to say that God didn't exist. Actually, uh, Paul Jr. Uh, taught Wednesday night on 1 Corinthians 1 about the wisdom of the world. It's foolishness to God. Some, some think that they're so wise that they've completely lost common sense. They've completely lost objectivity. That's a big word. Are we objective? Okay. Verse 22, we continue. Woe to men mighty at drinking wine. Woe to men valiant for mixing intoxicating drink who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away justice from the righteous man. So this is the woe of injustice, but it's numbed by alcohol. Very interesting. This is the, the, the different from the partying person, the person who's just going out morning through evening, you know, drinking, partying. The music is, is there, okay, it talked about. This person is they're more affluent. They're the cocktail party drinkers. They're the elites. These are the judges and leaders that were supposed to take an oath for justice and fairness and for a bribe. They would rule in their courts... I always say, if you can settle something out of court, even in our country, you never know what you're going to get when you go into a courtroom. I've testified at many trials. It's amazing. But what they do is they, they take the, the powerful, those with clout, the wealthy ones, and they, they side with them. And the person who has no... So it doesn't, right and wrong doesn't matter anymore. It matters who's, who's wealthy, who's, who's got clout, political clout. And what they do is they deaden their feelings with alcohol. It's very interesting, isn't it? You know, you find someone in society who's supposed to help be held in high regard, whether it be a politician 
or a judge or a governor or a police officer, somebody with power that's practicing injustice, there's something wrong with that person. And what they usually have to do is deaden their feelings because even unbelievers do have a sense of justice. Justice is, is a fascinating concept. So their, their abuse of alcohol has a root. The root is they can't sleep at night. They can't look in the mirror because they're constantly ruling for the powerful. They have to do it. I've seen this so many times. You know. As believers, though, are we fair? Do we show favoritism? Are we just? Do we treat people equally? Because, folks, this is aimed at believers. <laughs> okay? Do we favor those that are close to us or somebody that can do something for us? Are we known as fair people? Verse 24, last few verses. It says, Therefore, as the fire devours the stubble and the flame consumes the chaff, so their root will be as rottenness and their blossom will ascend like dust because they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts. That's key. And despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore, the anger of the Lord is aroused against His people. It doesn't say against the pagans. It says His people. He has stretched out His hand against them and stricken them, and the hills trembled. Their carcasses were His refuse in the midst of the streets. For all this, His anger is not turned away, but His hand is stretched out still. He will lift up a banner to the nations from afar and will whistle to them from the end of the earth. Surely they come with speed, swiftly. No one will be weary or stumble among them. This is the, the invading nations, right, that come and plunder. No one will slumber or sleep, nor will the belt on their loins be loosed, nor the strap of their sandals be broken, whose arrows are sharp, and all their bows bent. Their horses' hooves will seem like flint, and their wheels like a whirlwind. Their roaring will be like a lion. You can see this also in Habakkuk when he, God tells him about the coming Babylonians. They will roar like young lions. Yes, they will roar and lay hold of the prey. They will carry it away safely and no one will deliver. And that day they will roar against them like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks to the land, behold darkness and sorrow and the light is darkened by the clouds. How sad. So four out of four is the consequences of those woes. Again, what is the root? It's found in verse 24, very simply. Because they have rejected the law of the Lord, they've despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. You know, there's a lot of churches and a lot of different types of churches, and we network with a lot of churches. But we're like-minded if those churches are using the Scripture. Because if it's anything else, it's just a social club. It's a, it's a get-well seminar. It's a feel-good, whatever it is. It's just not a church. The Word of God has to be the root of why we fellowship. It's what brings us together. It's what teaches us. It's what, it's what unifies us. It's all in the Scripture. Otherwise, when we open it up to our interpretation and twist the words, then you, then you have churches that are fighting with each other, and that shouldn't be. But they would not receive His pardon embodied in repentance and forgiveness. The Judahites had become sloppy spiritually. They also became sloppy physically. They, they rested on their laurels. They were so filled with pleasure-seeking, they were no match for the warriors that came from other nations who were hungry. It reminds me, too, of the Babylonian kingdom under uh, Belsh Belshazzar. And Daniel was still in that kingdom. 
and uh, the, the, um, the Persians were at the gate. You know, Cyrus, Darius, and the, the Babylonians were, even the soldiers, they were drunk, they were, they were messing around, and uh, when the Persians came in, they were hungry. They could taste victory, and they slid in under the gates. And it's like these movies you see, when the enemy comes in, and they start attacking, and the defenders are not ready. These people were lean. They were hungry. They wanted Babylon so bad. And that's the way it was back then. If you let your guard down, and God was the, the guard, God was the protection. You let it down, you didn't find out until it was too late. You're losing, and you're losing everything. And now you're under bondage to these invaders. So, yeah, his, history tells that story. So let's put this in perspective. The believers back then had walked away from a relationship with God. They walked away from his word. And because of that, their behavior followed. They did awful things. Eventually, God had to remove his protective hand and judge them. But the question is, for us today, you know, we can look at our shores and we're protected by two oceans and a very strong military. But how can we apply this personally to our lives? Folks, are we bearing good spiritual fruit? So he expected it from the Judahites. Well, doesn't he expect good fruit from us? John 15 Jesus speaks about bearing fruit, right? Or are we producing wild grapes? Because God knows this world is a mess and our culture is a mess. Are we giving God our best or are we giving him leftovers? You know, we're becoming spiritually sloppy because we're letting the world influence, influence us. Are we allowing the internet and TV to influence us more than a word of God? Are we in our word at all? Or do we live our Christianity by memes on Facebook? You know what I'm saying? I, you know what really bugs me? Okay, you know where I'm going with this. You know, repost this or say this prayer and you're going to get money. Oh, please, don't send those to me. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? They're just so weird. You know, that's not, that's not a relationship with God. Sometimes I get convicted. Get off the computer and go, go, go in the Word. Go study more. It's a challenging chapter coming up. Because more than ever now, folks, we need to be a purifying agent. Are we up to the challenge? Let's pray. You've been listening to To Every Generation from Calvary Chapel Crossfields. We're located at 15 Half Acre Road in Jamesburg, New Jersey. We meet for Bible study Wednesdays at 7.30 p.m. and Sunday service begins at 10.30 a.m. On Sundays we have children's church for all ages in addition to infant and nursery care. You can find out more about the ministry here at Calvary Chapel Crossfields by going to cccrossfields.org. Thanks for listening and may God bless you. Thank you.